William Shepard walked down the cobblestone streets in Greenwich Village on the afternoon of Saturday, March 25, 1911. It was a trendy place that any young reporter for the United Press should be on a weekend. With an inclusive crowd, political activism, and a future home to Jackson Pollock, it was, and still is, much like the Buckhead area of Atlanta, Lakewood in Cleveland, or the South End of Charlotte today. Counterculture, a diverse population, and an amazing nightlife lived in these streets. William paused and shrugged when he heard the strange sound. <coughs> On Washington Square in late spring afternoon, it was such a strange sound to hear this loud thud with a sort of splat at the end. Curious, William stopped after the third time he heard the sound. Looking up from the corner of Washington Square and Washington Place, he noticed a puff of smoke coming from the factory known as the Ash Building. The first ten thud deads shocked me. I looked up and saw that there were scores of girls at the windows. The flames from the floor below were beating in their faces. As William stood in shock, nearly 53 women and girls jumped the 120 to 135 feet out of windows to escape the flames within the ash building. Over a thousand people flocked from the nearby park and streets to try to help those escaping the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory while it was on fire. Out of nearly 500 people in those three floors, 146 would not live to see the next day. Over 60 of those souls chose to try jumping to escape rather than die in flames. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. I'm Tim Coleman. And I'm Jeff Moss. Together we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is the Three Tumblers. Now, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, Part 2. Escape or Die. After nearly a year of uprising amongst the women who worked in New York City's textile factories, where they had gone on strike and waged a very public battle to unionize for better pay and working conditions, the women at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had gone back to work. Even though Max Blank and Isaac Harris had won their battle and did not give in to unionization, they had made a few small compromises for the workers in order to keep production running. However, there were still very strict rules for the workers, like very few, if any, breaks. After riding up the larger, wooden freight elevators in the morning and beginning work for the day, most of the exits were locked from the inside to keep workers from sneaking out from the production area. These doors also opened inwards, just like the front door on your house does. Although unimaginable today, inward swinging doors were still allowed by code in 1911. 
Restroom breaks were generally banned due to the thought that workers would not be able to produce as much product or that they would be stealing either shirtwaists or supplies like needles and thread. Surprisingly for the time, smoking was forbidden throughout the production floor. In the days when smoking inside was not only acceptable, some doctors actually recommended it as a way to reduce stress. And while the effects of consuming cigarette smoke were not widely known at the time, the potential effects of hot matches or ashes were very well known. At approximately 4.40 p.m., a still hot match or cigarette butt ignited a bin holding nearly two months worth of sewing and fabric scraps. The dry cotton, dust in the air, and oils absorbed from machines caught fire in that bin, which contained hundreds of pounds of combustible materials. Combined with dust in the air, wooden furniture, and oil-soaked materials and wood, the fire spread quickly. I'm not going to make a big deal about the match or the butt igniting the materials. That's just painfully stupid and reckless, and I can't add anything more to it. But equally painfully stupid and reckless, perhaps more so, were the locked exits here. Employee theft, yeah, I, I understand that. But like we talked about with Iroquois and people sneaking between the levels during a performance, it's a hell of a lot cheaper just to lock a door or a gate instead of employing someone that sits at an unlocked door. And when you're already obsessed over competition and operating costs, it's not far-fetched to say that you're blind to the full implications of your decisions. Personally, I don't see how you don't know this is wildly unsafe, and I'm pretty sure Max and Isaac knew that, but they likely just didn't care. We've already heard multiple examples of how little they cared for their employees, and this is just another example and one that's ultimately going to cause a lot of people to needlessly die. I agree. It's just bosses. I mean, they were like dictators back then, for what it seems like, and they didn't care. Everybody was going to steal from them. You don't trust people. Why do you even have? Why would you even hire them? But you know, they want the cheapest workers to do the most amount of work in the least amount, you know, in the amount of time given with. No breaks and no bathrooms. It's just bad. Yeah, I mean, there's a clear difference in not being able to take a break because you're too busy. All of us have experienced that. Uh, And not being allowed to take a break. That's one reason why I could never work, like, I guess, national retail, because your breaks are scheduled. I, I don't like that. Um, I've had times in different assignments in, you know, jobs where, you know, okay, you can do this at this time or, or, you know, here's where we're going to try to do this. But, uh, no, when you need a break, you need a break sometimes. And, you know, also constantly being suspected of theft. Like Jeff said, you know, these supervisors and bosses were just, dictators and you really mistreat these people working for you if you are constantly treating them like a criminal including locking them inside of the building
Seconds after the fire starts, a seamstress alerts a production manager to a burning smell. He then grabs a pail of water, kept nearby for dousing small fires, locates the source of the smell, and throws its contents onto the flames. However, the fire is already so big that the pitiful contents basically vaporized before it even hit its target. The nearly 500 women and girls working on the eighth floor started to smell the smoke as well and hear shouts of fire, so they started to get up and evacuate. Early on, some started trying to collect their personal belongings before leaving the building, but this was quickly abandoned as the smoke was growing intense and the flames getting closer. They rushed to the southwest stairway, which opens onto the corner of Washington Place and Washington Square by the park. The doors to this stairway not only opened inwards, but they were also locked. Fortunately, through the growing panic, a machinist managed to fight through the crowd and get people to give him long enough to turn the key that was still in the lock. In their panic, Dozens of would-be victims didn't realize that to open the doors to safety, all they had to do was turn the key and pull. At nearly the same time, a bookkeeper on the 8th floor called up to the main switchboard that was located on the 10th floor and alerted them of the fire. The switchboard operator panicked and dropped the receiver to start yelling at others on the top administration floor that there was a fire in the building. Since the internal phone system ran through that switchboard, there was no way for the 8th floor to communicate with the 9th floor directly. The people on that floor only got notification of a fire seconds before flames shot up through an air shaft. Thank God for modern fire alarm systems and telephones, right? Well, I mean, even, you know, if you don't have... Uh any form of backup if you have wires that just immediately got melted through i mean most systems don't have a secondary path or anything you know it, it's if the you know that's why they put fire alarm wiring in conduit um you know telephone stuff is not you know as mission critical as you know alarms and electrical so if something gets cut or something burns up that probably could that could still easily happen today well in, in my research, though, I was finding that this was normal operation. Like, you had to go 8th floor to 10th floor, and then 10th floor had to patch you through to the 9th floor. Well, if everything went through a switchboard, I guess, yeah, they, now you could just call whoever you wanted on the phone or page the entire place. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense that, you know, it was a, a manual switchboard then. I guess that really does make sense. So, here again... Yet again, in an, a, another story, we are hearing about locked doors and locked inward swinging doors. But like the narration said, uh, it was inward swinging just like the front door on your house. And these workers, when flames and smoke came up and they realized that it was time to go, it was time to, as we say in, in emergency services, de-ass the area. They run to the door, and they still can't get out, even though the key is in the lock. Now, as locksmiths, 
How many times have we heard somebody say when they have that double cylinder deadbolt in their door that when they're home, they just leave the key in it? They take it out only when they go on vacation because they, you know, leave the key in it to be able to get out in an emergency. Well, here are people in an emergency and the key is in the lock and they're not able to get out. It takes somebody with clarity of mind and presence of mind to go up and turn that key, unlock the door and pull it in. Just like you would on your house with a double cylinder deadbolt. Yeah, it's very similar to the issues that they had at Iroquois. Yeah. It sounds like they don't sounds like they don't learn. No, I mean they haven't learned at all in this situation. Um, and this is definitely a situation that we can use today to help educate our customers. I would just love to hear or know what kind of lock they had. I, I presume it was a mortise lock given the time, but I don't know for sure. But I, I would love to know what they had on that door. I didn't see any pictures in the research I did, uh, but I think you're... I, I would agree with you that you're probably correct. It was a mortise body, and also at the time it was probably a uh, bit key, not a pin tumbler. Depending on the size of the key and the lock itself, it's three, four times as big as you know your regular residential double cylinder deadbolt that you have today. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that they're a little bit more stout than what we carry today. So that they're in a panic, there's no risk of breakage. Uh, I don't know how you could break a bit barrel key because they are so dang thick. They're, uh, if you're listening to this, you're not familiar with it. They're probably at least an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch thick. You're not breaking that. Not, not through normal operation. Yeah, if you're... It- to our listeners who are not locksmiths or lock enthusiasts, I, a bit key, just imagine the old keys from you might see in a movie with pirates or dungeons, and they've got a prisoner locked up, and the guard has this big ring of huge keys. Those are basically the keys we're talking about right now. Yeah, what normally what normal people call skeleton keys. Max Blank and Isaac Harris, along with members of their family, were on the 10th floor of the Ash Building that Saturday. When they heard about a fire rapidly spreading through their factory, they urged all the people on their floor up to the roof in hopes that they would either be safe from the flames or be able to cross over to the top of a nearby building. During this time, A worker from the 8th floor managed to run up the stairs to the 10th floor, grab a pressurized water hose, and shoot water onto the flames that were already coming up from below. But his efforts were to no avail, as the heat and flames were already so intense that the pitiful stream of water did absolutely nothing to reduce the flames. 
At the same time, William Shepard was walking down the sidewalk towards Washington Square Park. A bystander, who saw smoke coming from the 8th floor, had alerted the Fire Department of New York at 4.45 p.m. Within a minute, the FDNY arrives on the scene. Also arriving at the same time was a New York Police Department officer who ran up the steps to the 8th floor but could not reach it due to the intense smoke and flames. This was certainly a much faster response time than we saw from Chicago at the Iroquois Theater fire. You know, I don't know if uh, it was just the alerting system that the public had access to in New York at the time, or if it was just a combination of things, good luck, you know, divine intervention, whatever you want to call it, uh, that got the fire department there within just a minute or two of, you know, the fire. I mean, we're looking at six minutes from the time that the fire erupted until the fire department's actually on scene. They were alerted five minutes after the fire erupted and arrived one minute later. That's pretty darn fast. Unfortunately, the fire moved at such a great speed that they weren't able to do a whole lot. Yeah, and that's a good point. And let's go back to our lovable fire triangle for a second. A fire needs, like we said, heat, oxygen, and fuel to survive, for lack of better words. In a grossly simplistic explanation, dousing a fire with water seeks to remove the heat and the oxygen portions. The hose that Tim just described was likely sized to handle basic office fires. I know this was deemed necessary for a manufacturing, but not in the sense that we've got hundreds of pounds of combustible material laying around everywhere. So here we have ample amounts of combustible material, practically every square foot, but the hose was outsized, so to speak. Now you may think, why didn't they have a bigger hose? Well, there are merits to smaller hoses like these. They're easily manageable. They're easy to deploy. And most importantly, they're pretty easy for the person that's never used them and is facing a fire to use them. Ultimately, what happened here is that the hose, while a crucial piece of fire safety at the time, was likely sized for a typical office fire, not a textile factory fire. It was not capable of delivering the flow of water to fight this kind of fire. And when it was installed, they likely never envisioned the sort of fire to begin in the first place. So I'm not putting blame on anybody, but they didn't likely envision this. So it was undersized to begin with. So they, they never had any chance of fighting this fire with that hose on hand. And when you say typical office fire, we're talking about when somebody drops that cigarette butt into the paper wastebasket. That's something that we would consider a typical office fire at the time? Yeah, and nothing as far as textiles, oils, all sorts of things. And then on top of that, you've got those wooden benches. You're, you're having to side shuffle between the sewing machines to get there. You've got all these benches. You've got discarded materials, you've got oils, you've got all sorts of things. Basically, every square foot of this building has a combustible material on top of it, sometimes stacked two, three feet high. It's loaded to the brim. 
So a hose for this size is not appropriate for what's going on right now and why it did not work. The Northeast Staircase, located near where the fire started, was blocked by fire from the 8th floor up. On the 9th floor, there was a barrel of flammable oil just outside of the staircase. Along with boxes and other materials, it further fueled the fire creating walls of flame, rendering that staircase completely unusable within mere minutes of the fire starting. As we mentioned, the 8th floor stairway access to the southwest stairs was locked initially, but opened by a machinist allowing for people to escape. On the ninth floor of this same staircase, a foreman who had the key to that lock managed to be one of the first to escape. Although the Ash Building had an exterior fire escape installed when initially constructed in 1900, Many of the workers did not know of its existence, nor how to get to it when they were being surrounded by fire on all sides. The ones who did know and used that route of escape were met with many problems along the way. Instead of leading to within feet of the ground, the bottom of the escape was over a basement skylight, meaning that you had to jump into the lower level and then reascend to the street to be completely free of the building. Also, the 18-inch wide stairs meant that evacuees could only go single file, and the anchoring bolts in the wall were not able to sustain the weight of a number of people moving as fast as they can to get down to safety. In the end, those stairs which were meant to save lives buckled, twisted, and fell 100 feet to the ground with nearly 20 workers on them. Even though it is contrary to every emergency sign we see today, and for good reason, many workers were able to escape via the elevators in the building. The two made three trips each up to the ninth floor and saved nearly 150 workers before the rails on one car buckled due to the heat. The other elevator car had to stop making trips after workers on the eighth floor pried the doors open. As the top of the car grew further away, some of the women attempted to jump and slide down the cables, hoping to land on top and ride to safety. But others grew more desperate and jumped freefall into the shaft, plummeting the distance and crashing into the top of the elevator car. These bodies caused the car to come to a halt, with the impacts warping the rails. So 18 inches for the fire escape, that's almost a foot narrower than what we described with the vestibules at Lakeview. The vestibules that caused an enormous loss of life in Collinwood, and as I said in the first part of this episode, this goes back to the decision to eliminate the interior stairway for added space, and the compromise was the exterior fire escape. But even that doesn't matter because the fire escape wasn't strong enough to support the weight. So you might as well not even have had it. Yeah, that's crazy. And I I don't use TikTok, but I remember there was a trend about a month or two ago of New Yorkers going out on fire escapes and showing how many of them 
were basically in a state of disrepair or maintenance. So God forbid something like this happens again, but from the looks of it, those fire escapes are not doing well, and this is likely going to happen again if they're ever needed to be used. Well, plus this fire escape didn't just come down to the ground like most modern fire escapes do. It actually went to a skylight for the basement. So here you drop into the basement out of the the fire escape down into the basement and then you can take the stairs up from the basement to exit out. It's just horrible. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, normally what a 6 to 8 maybe more slightly more foot drop from the bottom of a fire escape now uh, to the ground, but you're going to be okay with a 6 foot drop with a drop down into the basement I couldn't find any dimensions on it but that's how far down you're going and then you have to find your way out of the building again now let's not forget that these women these girls were never drilled on how to use the fire escape there's only two windows really to get to it on the ninth floor and you have to open those and they didn't really want the workers knowing how to get out onto the fire escape because, guess what? They thought that they would be out there taking breaks. So these workers had no clue how to get to the fire escape, how to use it, how to get down it. Nobody really used it because there were no drills, so they didn't know what a state of disrepair it was in. Obviously, it's not any type of treated steel And in the Northeast climate in New York City, untreated steel just doesn't last very long because of the harsh climate between seasons and heat and humidity and extreme cold. You know, that's not going to last very long. The Masonic building in downtown Cleveland had a bunch of fire escapes that looked like you would never trust them and like, glad we're not down there anymore just you know looking at it from the outside of the building you would not want to use those yeah and one more thing elevators in a fire it it worked here but in case you don't know the reasons why they're not to be used in a fire going forward i.e today uh, first they operate using electrically powered motors if a fire damages the electrical system the elevator stops moving and you're basically entombed wherever you are when it stops which may be at the floor of the fire The second reason is that elevator shafts are massive open areas that essentially act as a chimney for smoke. The cars aren't smoke tight, so to speak, so if the smoke starts to enter the shaft, it's coming in the car. So whether you're moving or not, you're getting all of that smoke. And finally, it's just faster to move outside of an elevator. Think about the wait times for an elevator on a normal, everyday sort of use. Then imagine everyone trying to get out at once, stopping four by four, but no one can get on after a certain amount of time because the car's filled. But since the buttons are pressed, you're still stopping at every floor. So it's not conducive to a exiting strategy for a life safety event. And I think the only reason why the elevators worked in this case was because they were using the larger freight elevators. So it's not a typical elevator like you would think of today. Back then, these freight elevators were probably a little bit larger than freight elevators we might be used to today. 
I'm not sure. I couldn't find the exact dimensions, but still they can hold typically 30 to 40 people going up for their shift at the start of the day. So you can imagine that is a way that they were able to mass evacuate. So you make three trips of 40 people each, you know, that's 120 people brought to safety. Do that times two elevators. That's why it worked. And I think that's the only reason why these elevators worked in this case. And that the fire actually started on the eighth floor and not on the ground floor. If the fire had started on the first or second floor, the the elevators would have been like crematoriums for anybody who tried to use them. In my view, they're they're basically the diesel engines of elevators at any class A sort of building. They've got heavier loads that they can deal with. They're a little bit more robust. Jeff, uh, do you know anything about freight elevators? They're not very common around here. I mean, sometimes they'll they'll just dedicate another elevator that's ugly to use for deliveries and stuff. But like the actual big freight elevators, like with the chain link fence inside and stuff, you don't see a lot of them. Maybe in some of the big old buildings downtown, but office buildings and stuff, they just would have a maybe a separate elevator somewhere else that they use for loading and a contractor. Although the brave firefighters of the Fire Department of New York arrived within a minute, their equipment, mainly the ladders, were inadequate in their rescue efforts. Nets were deployed to attempt to catch victims who jumped or were crowded and pushed off of ledges, but they were too hard to see from eight and nine stories up. Plus, the velocity of almost 70 miles per hour was just too much for the material to handle. One bystander on the sidewalk was actually struck by a falling body and died due to those injuries. Of the 146 deaths that day, 62 either jumped or fell to their deaths. At 5.15 p.m., a mere 35 minutes after the fire first started, it was extinguished. At 6.20 p.m., Firefighters began entering the top three floors of the ash building, finding dozens upon dozens of burned bodies. By 8 p.m., around 60 bodies had been lowered from the upper floors to the street below. A number of death wagons came to collect the bodies for transport to makeshift morgues. At 8.15 p.m., a worker who was trapped inside the bottom of an elevator shaft, was rescued. This was the last survivor of the disaster who lived to tell what happened. 11.15 p.m. The last body is removed from the building. So just imagine what a Hallmark movie moment that would be to pull that last survivor out of the elevator shaft. I mean, honestly, that had to be the greatest feeling for that person. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they fell from, if they fell, if they fell out of the elevator, what happened, how they wound up there. But wouldn't that be just great? On the other hand, as the firefighter rescuer, 
you know, those people, those guys who were in there pulling people out, to know that that was the last person alive that you have to rescue from that building. It's got to be a daunting task. And coming up, we'll hear a little bit about how they dealt with that. But, I mean, the emotional and mental toll on all those workers is just tremendous. I remember when 9-11 happened that they expected an influx of survivors after the collapse at hospitals, but they never got them because either you got out or you didn't. So I, I can understand that so few were rescued after the fact because that's what happened on 9-11. Either you got out or you didn't. I recently got a cat and Tim had me watch The Lion in Your Living Room. And in that documentary, they explained that the reason that cats can survive falls from great heights is because they basically spread themselves out, sort of in an X shape, to slow their rate of descent as much as possible. And then they land on their feet to absorb as much of the impact as possible. Would it work here? Doubtful. Because you're landing on concrete and don't have the surface area to weight ratio that cats do. But people have survived fail skydiving attempts by employing similar means and methods. So basically what I'm trying to say is that it's just something to consider. May not work, but that's what the cats and the experts say to do. Two days after the fire, William Shepard recounted seeing people jump from the building. As I looked up, I saw a love affair in the midst of all the horror. A young man helped a girl to the windowsill. Then he held her out, deliberately away from the building, and let her drop. He held out a second girl the same way, and let her drop. Undoubtedly, he saw that a terrible death awaited them in the flames, and his was only a terrible chivalry. Then came the love amid the flames. He brought another girl to the window. Those of us who were looking saw her put her arms about him and kiss him. Then he held her out into space and dropped her. But quick as a flash, he was on the windowsill himself. His coat fluttered upward. The air filled his trouser legs. I could see that he wore tan shoes and hose. His hat remained on his head. Thud dead. Thud dead together, they went into eternity. I saw his face before they covered it. You could see in it that he was a real man. He had done his best. Next time on The Three Tumblers. You can be cutthroat, you know, protecting your union job, but at the same time, it does protect workers. Attacking the fire with that, you move the nozzle in a circular motion. That putting water on one of those battery fires is actually way worse. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. 
technical producer is Jeff. My name is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.